Okay, this is the last session. It's a marathon today. Uh, it was a little warm in here, but um, you know, for another 25 million or so, we've we got a 50 million dollar capital campaign going for the new building. I think we've got about 20, 25 million. So actually, one check would do it. Uh, you know. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Charles Plosser uh, as our closing uh, keynote speaker. Uh, he's the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, where he started in August 2006. Uh, Charles is an old friend. He was on the Shadow Open Market Committee. Uh, Carl Bruner uh, was a mentor of Charles, uh, although I think they disagreed a little bit on some of the real business cycle theory. Uh, <laughs> Charles has published widely in the American Economic Review. He was the editor of the Journal of Monetary Economics for more than 20 years. Uh, and he's got experience as being a dean. Uh, I think he found going to the Fed probably a vacation after being the dean at the uh, Simon School at uh, Rochester, where he did a great job. He was also a member of the economics department there, a professor of economics. He got a, uh, a Ph.D. in economics from University of Chicago and also his MBA from Chicago. Uh, I just wanted to give a short introduction because he doesn't need a lot of introduction here, but um, I was reading a speech that he gave in Prague uh, in March 2010, and I just wanted to quote one sentence from that speech, which won't embarrass him, I don't think, uh, and Carl Bruner would like this a lot. Uh, he said, I'm in favor of a systematic rule-based approach to monetary policy, primarily because it limits discretion and improves economic stability by reducing policy uncertainty. And that's something that Carl always emphasized. He says there's natural uncertainty, uh, like maybe the person you're going to marry. Uh, <laughs> I made that one up. Uh, actually, I've been married for 40 years, so I, th I think my wife made a good decision. <laughs> uh, but uh, he meant institutional uncertainty, policy uncertainty. And of course, we've got a lot of policy uncertainty these days. There's no rules to guide either fiscal or monetary policy. So I thought Charles's uh, uh, statement there was right on target. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll get started. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that introduction. And no, you didn't embarrass me with that quote. I, I probably used it in a number of speeches here and there, so it's nothing, nothing surprising. So it is a pleasure to be here, be back at Cato. Uh, used to be a frequent visitor here with the Shadow, and and uh, so I'm delighted to be that Jim invited me back here to participate in this 28th Cato Monetary Policy Conference. So in preparing today's remarks, I, I noted that this year's topic on how monetary policy should deal with asset prices was also discussed here in 2008. The speakers at that time expressed a wide variety of views and opinions, and the fact that this important question continues to resurface here and at other prominent meetings in recent years suggests a consensus is far from being reached on the issue. So today I'm going to offer one policymaker's views on, the, on the, some of the key issues, and I do mean one policymaker's, because as usual my remarks do not necessarily represent those of my colleagues on the FOMC or the Federal Open Market Committee, or the Federal Reserve System. I fully expect that some of you will find my, my uh, views compatible with your own. Some of you may not. Uh, and I doubt that I'll change either one of your minds in what I have to say at the end of the day. Now, it's probably only a modest stress to say that the prevailing view among many, if not most, monetary policymakers 
has been that a central bank should not make asset prices a direct focus of monetary policy. Yet the housing boom, followed by its subsequent collapse, the financial crisis, and the following, uh, and followed by the uh, financial crisis, are all viewed as central elements that gave rise to what's now been called the Great Recession. These events, of course, have once again renewed the debate about whether central banks should give asset prices a direct role in policymaking. Now, the severity of the financial crisis and of this recession has led many forecasters to anticipate a protracted period of modest economic growth, accompanied by a very slow decline in unemployment. Some even worry that the unemployment, that, that the economy might fall into a deflationary trap. I don't happen to be one of those. Indeed, I'm more optimistic than many about the future path of the economy. However, it is no surprise that I share the frustration of many with the pace of the economic recovery. So in light of these events, it's easy to understand how many would want to re-examine the role of central banks in preventing such crises. How should the Fed policymakers best ensure price stability and maximum sustainable growth? What role do booms and busts in asset prices play in fomenting economic and financial instability? To what degree should monetary policymakers allow asset prices to directly influence the course of monetary policy? This latter question is the focus of today's discussion, and it remains a thorny issue. Monetary policy as conducted by the Fed is typically guided by the traditional concerns of monetary policymaking. They include some measure of economic growth and the current or expected rate of inflation relative to some target. The exceptions, of course, have been periods where central banks have acted as lender of last resort and usually lowering interest rates rapidly in the face of a liquidity crisis. So how should asset price behavior impact the path of monetary policy? Well, one view stresses that movements in asset prices can provide useful information about the current and future state of the economy including the prospects for inflation. This, of course, stems from the fact that asset prices often have forward-looking elements uh, in, their, uh, in them. In this case, asset prices would just be one of many signals that monetary policymakers should consider as inputs into their forecasts of output and inflation. An alternative perspective has the, has the stance of monetary policy reacting directly to movements in asset prices in an attempt to reduce or eliminate the formation of asset price bubbles that could be damaging to the economy. So let me consider these arguments in turn. The first rationale for paying attention to asset prices should not, in fact, be very controversial. In my view, monetary policy, in my view of monetary policy, the central bank should systematically vary its target for interest rates in line with movements in, with movements in an estimate of the real interest rate. In the face of economic shocks that result in an increase in the real interest rate, the central bank should respond by raising its target rate of interest commensurately, as long as inflation is at or near its target. Failing to do so will lead to higher inflation in the future. Similarly, if shocks cause a decrease in the equilibrium real interest rate, then the central bank should lower its target rate to avoid disinflation. This approach is appealing because it, it generally, is generally consistent with optimal monetary policy rules that fall out of many standard macroeconomic models with nominal rigidities. Note that by following such a systematic approach to monetary policy, as I've just outlined, policy actions provide a natural response to broad-based increases in real interest rates that often accompany asset price inflation. The systematic policy also provides a natural 
and predictable response to those rates as they decline. Indeed, it does so, though, in the context of maintaining a low and stable inflation rate. However, there are challenges in implementing this approach. First, we don't observe the real rate directly. Instead, we must estimate it based on observations of inflation and proxies for expected inflation. Moreover, trying to infer movements in the real interest rate from changes in prices for a wide range of assets, some of which may be moving in opposite directions, is also quite a challenge. Nevertheless, conceptually, asset values can be a valuable source of information that can help determine the appropriate policy stance, but they are not an object of policy per se. A slight variation to this argument is that policymakers' judgments about inflationary or deflationary potential of the current stance of monetary policy could be informed by a wide array of market signals, including asset price movements. Indeed, some research has suggested that rapid increases in asset prices, especially home prices, can provide a particularly relevant source of information about the future course of inflation. Monetary policymakers may find it helpful, therefore, to incorporate such information in their analyses and, in particular, their forecast. For example, one of the Fed's stated reasons for beginning to raise rates in 1999 was the inflationary potential of high, va- high equity values. Since high equity values are consistent with a high rate of return on investment for a given level of risk, policy would require a high nominal interest rate to keep inflation stable. While research offers some support for the predictive value of various asset prices for movements in the future of inflation, the evidence, however, is not overwhelming, and it varies considerably across assets. Perhaps more troubling is that we really do not have a well-developed theory about how the monetary transmission mechanism transforms the relative price of various assets into movements in output and inflation. Carl Bruner and Alan Meltzer, not to mention James Tobin, did a great deal of earlier work on this issue of the transmission mechanism and its effect on relative asset prices, but there's really not been much research done on that for some time. So asset price movements may be relevant in the normal course of monetary policymaking, but what's noteworthy is that in this framework, there's the presumption that asset prices are responding efficiently and correctly to the underlying state of the economy and perhaps even to changes in policy. So this brings me to the second argument for responding to asset price movements. There are many people who believe that asset prices are not always tied to market fundamentals. They worry that when asset values rise above their fundamental value for extended periods, that is, when a bubble forms, there will be an overinvestment in the overvalued asset. And when the market corrects that misalignment, which inevitably it does, the necessary reallocation of resources may depress economic activity in that sector and perhaps in the overall economy. These boom-bust cycles induced by these bubbles are inefficient and disruptive. So, the argument goes, policy should endeavor to prevent or at least temper these cycles. Now, this argument for monetary policy responding directly to the perceived mispricing of specific assets is more controversial. But the fundamental idea should not be too un- it should be quite familiar. Many policymakers focus on measures of economic slack, such as the gap between the level of resource utilization and some concept of potential or natural level of output. This natural level may be the natural rate of unemployment, or it may be something we sometimes call potential level of output. 
these gaps are presumed to be are presumed to be inefficient. So policy seeks to reduce them. When output is below potential, monetary policy is supposed to be accommodative. When output is above potential, the prescribed stance is more restrictive. Now, in the same manner, some people may want monetary policy to reduce or eliminate the perceived gaps in asset values from their equilibrium or natural levels. In this view, asset bubbles are like asset price gaps, a signal of an inefficient allocation of resources. Yet, even if you accept that argument, it's not clear that monetary policy is necessarily the right tool to close that gap. In some ways, the arguments against basing monetary policy on output or unemployment gaps, for that matter, are the same ones for opposing monetary policy based on asset price gaps or bubbles. In both cases, the concerns, cha the concerns challenge the presumption that policymakers can distinguish between departures from efficiency and an, 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 an efficient response to unobserved shocks. For instance, if the current high unemployment rate is largely a consequence of cycl cyclical weakness, perhaps reflecting an inefficient amount of aggregate demand, or is the current unemployment rate an efficient response to a real shock that requires a reallocation of labor across sectors and perhaps significant retraining due to an evolving mismatch between the skills of those looking for work and the skills that employers are currently needed. If it's a simple failure of aggregate demand, adjusting monetary policy may in fact help. But if the unobserved shock causes mismatches in skills within and across firms, accommodative monetary policy will not effectively address that problem and thus would risk higher inflation. The difficulty in accurately measuring gaps is a serious matter. Work by Athanasios Orphanides and others have argued that the heavy reliance on mismeasured or misperceived output gaps was a significant contributor to the excessive monetary accommodation, accommodation that led to the great inflation of the 1970s, not one of the Fed's finer moments. Now imagine the difficulties in determining asset price gaps. When asset values rise sharply in a bubble-like fashion, may be difficult to determine whether the price is based on market fundamentals or not. This would be particularly true in the early stages of a boom. For instance, an increase in equity values may look high when compared to the increase in the current level of corporate profits. Yet the values may be far more in line when viewed as a response to an increase in the prospective growth rate of future profits. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to tell the difference between these two between the increase in a level and an increase in the growth rate. And we may not know the answer to that for some time to come. Only passages of time will reveal which of those two events turns out to be the right one. Because it's difficult to discern a genuine misalignment in asset prices from a change in asset price, prices driven by fundamentals, monetary policy actions that respond to such price changes could generate, it could generate even more inefficiencies um, where could, could generate in inefficiencies where none exist and could even exacerbate the problems even if, with, even if uh, they were uh, designed to address inefficiencies that may in fact did address. They could create more harm than good otherwise. We must remember that monetary policy operates with only one instrument, short-term nominal interest rates. 
It's challenging enough for monetary policy to calibrate and communicate our policy stance when we try to balance the perceived trade-offs between output gaps and inflation. Adding asset price gaps to this mix will push us well beyond our capabilities and will more likely be a source of discretionary mischief and mayhem than stability. Just imagine an environment where financial market participants wanting to lock in their profits from being long or short in some asset would call on the Fed to act to support, to, to continue to support a rise in asset prices or to prick the incipient bubble. That seems to me like a counterproductive environment to create for monetary policy. Sound monetary policy making requires us to understand the limits of what we know. I doubt that we could find enough agreement among policymakers or economists about the interpretation of asset price movements to allow for a stable rule-based policymaking. In the absence of a clearly stated rule, we risk uncertainty about the central bank policy itself as well as about its effect on the economy. We could become a source of volatility in asset markets rather than a force of stability and ultimately a source of instability in real activity and inflation. Put more bluntly, asset prices are often volatile, and creating, ex and creating expectations that monetary policy will intervene directly to influence the price-setting mechanism seems more dangerous for the orderly functioning of markets than helpful, even in the rare instances where a true and significant distortion may in fact exist. In my view, hum humility in policymaking requires that we respect the limits of our knowledge and not overreach particularly when it involves overriding market signals with policy interventions. Another challenge in addressing asset price bubbles in practice is that contrary to many economic models that we have, in reality there are many assets, not just one. And these assets have different characteristics. For example, equities are very different from homes. Misalignments or bubble-like behavior may appear in one asset class and not in others. But monetary policy is a blunt instrument. How would monetary policy go about pricking a bubble in technology stocks in 1998 and 99 without potentially wreaking havoc on other investments in other, invest in other asset classes? After all, while NASDAQ grew at an annual rate of something like 81% in 1999, the NYSE composite grew at just 11%. How would you calibrate policy to prick the tech bubble and not wreak havoc with stocks? What damage could have been done to other stocks and other asset classes had monetary policy aggressively raised, aggressively raised rates to dampen the so-called tech bubble? Similarly, during the housing boom, some parts of the housing market were experiencing rapid appreciation, while others were not. How do you burst a bubble in Las Vegas real estate where house prices were rising at 45% by the end of 2000, per annum by the end of 2004 without damaging Detroit, whose house prices were barely increasing at 3%. Now, I know there are some macroeconomic, macroeconomic models do call for monetary policy responses to asset price movements, particularly if bubbles occur. Yet such theoretical results, in my view, are very sensitive to the specification of the model, nor do they address this issue of reality where there are multiple asset crisis, uh, classes that behave very differently. Thus, while I understand the desire to use monetary policy to reduce and eliminate misalignments of asset prices, I believe that implementing such a policy as a practical matter 
would not help us to deliver better performance, either in terms of price stability or sustainable output growth. In summary, I would not advocate raising interest rates simply to lower asset prices when they appear to deviate from some fundamentals. To me, this is a policy that's easy to get wrong and fraught with risks. Moreover, policy directed to influence asset prices could encourage discretionary actions by the Fed that would draw it ever deeper into credit allocations and the determination of relative prices. That should not be the role of monetary policy. There are lessons for monetary policy making in the, in the wake of the financial crisis. Inde indeed, I believe that we are discussing here today the question of whether asset prices and monetary policy, at least in uh, the question of asset prices and monetary policy, at least in part because Fed policy during the mid-2000s, as John Taylor has said, went off track. John and others have argued forcefully that Fed kept interest rates too low for too long during 2003 to 2005. And as Jim said, being an erstwhile member of the Shadow Open Market Committee for almost 15 years, I actually stood in this very room at this very podium in 2003, along with Mickey, with uh, 2003 and 2004, expressing concerns and fears that fears of deflation were excessive and that policy was probably too accommodative. The error may not have been that policymakers failed to pay attention to the fast upward movement in asset prices, but they deviated from a systematic approach to setting nominal interest rates. The policy approach that I have advocated would increase interest rates and target, interest rate target in line with increases underlying real interest rates is a form of systematic inflation targeting. That would most likely lead to rising real interest rates during these asset booms, but probably at a more modest pace. Thus, even in the wake of the financial crisis, I continue to advocate that the Fed follow a systematic approach that keeps monetary policy focused squarely on inflation and output growth, but especially on inflation. To the extent that booms may engender excess leverage in systemically sensitive parts of our financial system, we need to ensure that regulations and institutional structures are designed to enhance the effectiveness of market discipline, not undermine market discipline, as ways to keep risk-taking under control. Monetary policy should retain its focus on providing price stability as a means to support sustainable growth in employment and output over the longer run, not in chasing incipient bubbles. Thank you very much. So I guess I'm, I'm to take some questions, so I'll try to answer or not answer. You know, I go to Fed school and they tell me what I can answer and what I not can answer, so I try to live by the rules. Just raise your hand if you have a question. And uh... Yeah, I'm Jim Averill. I'm a private investor. Um, do you think much about the negative aspects of extremely low interest rates? That's to say, is it possible that zero percent is too low? Absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I, but I also think I worry about them when they're too high, too. So I think, I, I think certainly we're in an unusual environment today with interest rates close to zero, or so the funds rate close to zero and very low interest rates. Um, we're also in an unusual environment with the state of the economy. 
So I think that uh, in, any, in any way I think about monetary policy and think about the setting of interest rates, you're struggling with trying to trade off costs and benefits and trying to live by sort of a systematic approach that tries to balance those two things. Um, in this environment, it's a little more trickier than, than normal. Um, and at times, you're trading off what may be long-run costs, which are hard to quantify, with perceived short-term benefits that may be more more tangible. And so it becomes a very difficult balancing act, uh, And but that's what we struggle with at every meeting <laughs> is exactly those kind of trade-offs. And because they're not always easily quantifiable, reasonable people can disagree on how they, they, uh, they evaluate those costs and benefits. Regarding your comments about not using monetary policy to stop asset bubbles, um, I, I would argue that when asset prices fall, the Fed has been you know, cutting rates, particularly the tech bubble and with the housing bubble. So do you, is there a problem where you have this asymmetry that when, house, when asset bubbles burst, the Fed is always um, coming in to save that? I know there's real economy effects as well. But if you don't raise rates when, house, when asset prices are going up, but you're always going to cut them when, when asset prices fall. I would prefer to have a policy, as I, as I was trying to allude to, a policy that's systematic that says in an ex-ante fashion, here's how we're going to respond to the state of the economy and the state of real interest rates or in, or in, a, or in a Taylor rule format. It, prescribe, it will prescribe for you <laughs> the path that you will follow. And that taking, as, as some people describe, extra action, it's not entirely obvious that that's a good thing to be doing or even to be signaling that you're going to do because it creates moral hazard problems. So I would, I would prefer to agree on a framework that gives you a systematic path that is appropriately responsive to the state of the economy uh, and, to, and to stick with it rather than setting up incentives where you have incentives to deviate from that uh, for one reason or another. Okay, how about way in the back there? I, think, I see somebody raising your hand. Hi, uh, Sam Baker, Transnational Research. Um, uh, I have a question about the word inflation. There's a great paper by the Cleveland Fed in the early 90s called On the Origin and Evolution of the Word Inflation. And they argue that, you know, we've turned the word inflation to the meaning uh, is the, really the effect of what the word originally meant, which is too much, you know, fiat money chasing a certain, you know, uh, reserve a hard commodity reserve, and and that this idea of a price indice as a measure of inflation is is really uh, sort of erroneous. Um, and uh, so I just wonder what what your uh, take is on on that argument. That that why should we say that inflation is a general rise in the price level rather than something absolute like the gold price, something like that. You know, I think the idea of inflation is, 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 is exactly that. It's a, it's a general rise in the level of all prices, not of any specific price. I mean, certainly you had lots of, you've had periods of lots of inflation even under commodity standards of various kinds. So commodity standards don't get you out of the risk of inflation over some periods of time. Where you have gold discoveries and other things, you can have, you can have lots of inflation during periods of time. So um, that doesn't fix the problem in some sense. It just makes the problem, translates it into another problem about how, what commodities you choose to base it on. But having said all that, I think the concept that economists have of what we mean by inflation is a general lot rise in the level of all prices 
in the economy uh, and standards of living and prices that people pay. I think where it gets a little murky is there is some literature out there that talks about you know, trying to think, why aren't asset prices part of the price index? That's another, that's another uh, perspective to take. But the problem with that, I, the way I think about that, that's a little different because that's actually a price index of things other than expenditures and consumption. Usually economists think about the price level as having to do something with current consumption. Uh, because asset prices are forward-looking and have elements of forward-looking. They may be useful for predicting, as I said, inflation in goods and services, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to construct price indexes that, 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 uh, that conform to them. So, but that's a debatable point that different people can take different perspectives on. Yeah, well, uh, right, right there. Yeah, Peter Whitney, American uh, at, uh, University. Uh, could you comment on the use of the two, the the uh, personal consumption deflator versus the CPI, and how you get one might suggest deflation and the other doesn't? And we made an abrupt change, I think, in two thousand eight. Can you get into that? Is that one of those things? You well, no, I don't. Th I think I think uh, the the shift in um, the uh, emphasis on the PCE deflator as opposed to the CPI, at least in uh, in the Fed's reporting and its monetary policy reports to Congress, actually occurred back in 19, I think it was 98. And Greenspan made that, made that switch. Uh, and partly he made the switch for a couple of reasons, uh, or at least what's written about it, is there, there are a couple of things about the CPI that people didn't like. It has distortions in it. We all remember the Boskins reports and the, the biases that are in the CPI. The weights don't change as the baskets are fixed, and so you get some distortions because of that. Um, the other thing is that if the weights are different in the CPI than they are in the PCE. Uh, in particular, in, in, the CPI, in the CPI, the weights given to, for example, housing are, accounts for like 35% of the CPI. Um, it's much less than that in the PCE. Um, they have different ways of, commuting, of computing market prices uh, in the PCE than they do in the CPI. So, so the weights change as well as market prices change. So I think the Fed came to the conclusion that because of the way those indices were structured, they thought at the time the PCE was a better indicator, if you will, of underlying inflation. Now, having said that, um, uh, uh, as an individual, I kind of look at all, all of all the indices because they're informative. Uh, they're different, but they are informative. And I think that keeping some perspective about, about what the different indices are saying and perhaps some understanding of what may be driving them and why they're different can be informative to a policymaker rather than becoming too uh, obsessed over one particular measure. Now, if one were to establish, for example, an inflation target, um, then the Fed would have to commit itself to a particular construct and, and stick to it. And, you know, there would likely be lots of interesting debates about what the, appropriate, what the best one was. And in Europe, they've had this debate off and on at the ECB and same thing at, at, at the, uh, the Bank of England and at the Riksbank. They talk about which, what are the right indices they want to be committing their, their target to. So there are trade-offs in these things, and it's sort of a trying to arrive at what you think is the most representative way of thinking about what our index should look like. Which I think using we're using I use all of them. Why don't we take uh, one more question. Uh, Martin? 
to what extent do you worry about the U.S. savings rate when you're looking at monetary policy? Because you've now had very low real interest rates for a decade, or some would argue even more, and that, of course, discourages saving. You've also got a series of asset bubbles that have destroyed saving a couple of trillion dollars at a time. And aren't you in danger of decapitalizing the U.S. economy unless we from now here on going forward have an extended period of very high real interest rates like we had in the early 80s or in, under President McKinley in the 1890s. Just to pick a period. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, view, I, view the sa- I view savings rates uh, across the country, uh, in the nation sort of an endogenous variable. I think monetary policy perhaps has some influence on those, but it's not the predominant factor that thinks about that. Um, I think that if, if um, you know, we've been through this period uh, where savings rates were very low, people complained that this was the causing of the, the U.S. economy was overconsuming, they were, you know, distorting markets and causing their trade imbalances and all sorts of bad capital flows because we were saving too little. And, of course, now we have a period where, after this uh, recession, people are saving, actually saving more. And now they're complaining that they're saving too much. We want them to spend again. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 th- I think that I think the way I, I would think about that is not to prescribe what I thought the right savings rate should be because I don't know what it's any more than I know what the right exchange rate is. Um, what I would do would be think about our economic system, whether it be monetary policy, inflation rates, or more, more than likely fiscal policies of various kinds that distort saving, the consumption saving decision. And um, I think there are lots of things in our tax codes that are biased against savings. In fact, um, um, it's, it's interesting to me that um, uh, in, in Europe, for example, just to, uh, broadly speaking, um, their taxation of cap- their t- level of taxation is high, but their taxation of capital is less distortionary than it is in the United States. And you might think, uh, this is just a hypothesis, but you might argue that one of the ways they've succeeded as well as they have, e- given their high level of government spending, that they've created less distortions against capital investment and savings than we have. Now, that's just a hypothesis. But So I would rather think about the appropriate savings rate of thinking about what do we do in this country that distorts what the market would deliver as savings that people would want to have and try to remedy it that way rather than thinking about using monetary policy as a tool for that. Thank you. Thanks very much, Charles. Uh, His paper, by the way, will be available upstairs, and, of course, it will be on the website uh, for the uh, Philadelphia Fed. I'd like to thank uh, you all for coming today. Uh, It's going to be a nice reception upstairs in a few minutes. Uh, So I'd like to thank the Cato staff and uh, especially Victoria and Rachel uh, who have done uh, yeoman uh, service. Uh, Everything ran very smoothly. Uh, And I'd like to invite you to the conference next year. I'm not sure where it's going to be because this auditorium is going to be uh, uh, ripped apart and rebuilt. Uh, So we'll have to I have to talk to Ed Crane. Maybe we'll have him in Maui or someplace. Uh, Can I come back? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you have any suggestions for next year's conference, I always like to hear about them. Uh, I was thinking about uh, inviting uh, Merle Hazard. Uh, 
if you know who he is, he's a country singer, and he's got a great song called Inflation or Deflation uh, that you can get on the web. Uh, the papers from this conference will come out in the Cato Journal uh, in the spring issue, spring-summer issue. Uh, so thanks again, and uh, enjoy the reception.